Yes, give him a hand. Yes. I want to add our voice to thank all of the volunteers and uh, just amazing. It was just a phenomenal week, and Shelby and her team just did an amazing thing. If you would have seen all of the the hallways and the classrooms and the sanctuary and all the decorations and the hours and hours that went into it, again, it's uh, it's impacting. I remember as a little kid, I remember going to VBS. Anybody remember going to VBS? You know, uh, I still remember some of those moments. It's very formative, and so again, thanks for your involvement in that. I also want to mention um, July first is the last date to sign date to sign up for Date Your Mate. That's a weekend that we take where we go to Dallas and we just spend time as couples together. So if you are a married couple, I would encourage you sign up today. It's the best balance. Our team has done such a great job of balancing time with other couples to get to know them, time alone with your spouse so it really is a date, and then a little bit of teaching time so we learn something and we get some tools as we leave. It's in Legacy Park in Dallas. It's a beautiful hotel, a beautiful area. Um, once you park your car, you can walk everywhere that you want to go. And again, it's a great way to have that bonding time with your spouse, but also to get to know some other people in the church. Let's, uh, as we just get ready, um, we just want to pray together, and I want to kind of form our prayer from, if some of you are following the, the daily office, um, it's kind of a combination of scriptures and prayers from the Book of Common Prayer that we, many of us follow in the mornings and the evenings, and I just want to, uh, the very beginning opening sentence of our um, daily office this morning says, thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with the one who is a contrite, has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we are so thankful to be here with our family. Um, thank you for your desires for our life to bring fullness of life. Lord, we just simply recognize today that in our journey, in our attempts to try to find happiness and peace and joy, that oftentimes we go off on rabbit trails. Uh, we ch make choices and do things that are not how we've been designed. And we simply want to bring all of that back to you. We want to look to you. We know that you have a plan and a purpose that, that uh, restores and refreshes and revives us in the most significant way. And so we humbly come to you recognizing that we think we've got it all figured out, that we know exactly how things work, and we just simply realize we don't, that your ways are higher than our ways. And so we want to form um, and connect our lives to you in a more significant way today, whatever that looks like, we trust you and the working of your spirit in each and every one of our lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Rarely have I ever had a time, if ever, that I have felt so strongly that what we're sharing is good news. You know, we share a lot of times, and, and we talk about things that we hope are helpful for your life. We hope make some changes, and they're hopeful and positive. But somehow this week, the thing that was stirring within me was just, this is good news. We are proclaiming good news. So a few of the scriptures, a couple of the scriptures that kept going around in my mind to, uh, this week were Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all 
you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the 23rd Psalm, which probably was the first verse we ever memorized, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. You know, sometimes in the busyness of the week and all of the things that we have going on, we feel tattered and torn. And we need to be restored. We need to have our soul restored. So the thing that I really sensed as we were preparing this week is that the Lord really has a refreshing for us. A refreshing and a renewal. Which is very interesting because the scriptures that we really feel led to share on from the lectionary this week are very dark scriptures, and they deal with some very dark things. But we really feel that the Lord in the midst of this and through this has good news for us and has a way for us to be refreshed and renewed. It's one of the beautiful things about the lectionary is um, it just kind of forces you to deal with the whole story. Uh, we would have liked to have kind of approached you with a little lighter topic today. Uh, but the lectionary kind of, you just can't skip stuff. Uh, and you have to lean in to the entire story. And so, uh, again, so, some dark stories here. But the first one is in 1 Kings 21. It says, Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry. Now, as far as we know, he was an adult. But listen to this. Um, he lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. It's kind of... Kind of like a five-year-old here, okay? Sometimes we act like five-year-olds, you know? We have adult temper tantrums, you know, in our lives. Uh, his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her. And I can kind of envision a little bit of a whine in his voice. Um, because I said to neighbor, sell me your vineyard. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he, was, that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. Then he sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possessions of the vineyard of Naboth. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. What we, will to do, what we will do to get what we want 
Now, it's really easy for all of us to hear this story and to go, oh, my gosh, these people are evil. And yes, they were. Um, but before we get too high and mighty, I wonder what it is that sometimes we do to get what we want. Now, I'm assuming that there haven't been any stonings in the church body um, this week. Um, and so sometimes we disconnect ourselves from these stories. Um, but have we assassinated somebody's character this week or stoned their name or spoken against somebody or treated somebody with disdain? And so I'm just asking us to open our hearts today and to listen. Um, what, what is this saying to my life? Another story, it's the story of one of the greatest kings in Israel. You know the story. It's of David and Bathsheba. David sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop, and he wants her. And so he sends for her and sleeps with her. But she, he finds out that she's married. And so once she finds out that she's pregnant through a series of circumstances, he works it out so that her husband will be on the front line of battle. And then when the enemy comes, everyone will withdraw so that he will get killed. So basically, David has Bathsheba's husband killed. So we're going to pick up um, the story in 2 Samuel eleven twenty six. When Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Both of these stories are, I want what I want, and I'll do whatever it takes. Now, you know, we can understand a little bit Ahab and Jezebel. If you read the rest of their story of their life, these are just flat evil people, um, uh, yet, we're talking here about David. I mean, this was a man that was called a man after God's own heart, one of the great leaders of Israel. How could he have gone so far to where he had justified things? And how could he have been so deceived that he um, would have done this? And so, today we're going to talk specifically about 
um, sins, about particularly sins of relationships. And we can do consider this good news. Uh, these stories don't sound real good news-like, uh, but we believe that sin is something that destroys us. It's something that makes us less human. It's something that diminishes us. And so if we can recognize places where we're slowly being deceived, um, slowly rationalizing or justifying certain things in our life, and we can come to terms with that, and we can repent and turn a corner, it will bring new life. It'll, it'll bring strength and newness. And we do believe that that um, is good news. It's so, it's so easy for us to get involved in just the busyness of life and just taking care of the next thing that is our responsibility. Without realizing it, particularly in our culture, in the Western culture, things can begin to slowly turn so much towards me about self-centeredness. And without realizing it, we are little by little um, diminishing others. We're beginning to justify and rationalize certain behaviors, and it becomes, we become less human. It's not the way of Christ-likeness, and therefore it's not the way of life. Jesus said that he had come so that we might have life and have it to the full. He wants us to have a life that is full and joyous and not carrying the burdens and all of the negativity that we can so easily carry. But it's not a random thing that the first part of that verse, John 10.10, 10, says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what sin does. If we allow ourselves to slide into that, it steals, kills, and destroys the beautiful life that God has for us. But as Brent said, it's such an easy thing to do. We oftentimes don't recognize it. But when we get desensitized to sin or to a wrong way that we are going, we also get desensitized to joy in our lives. We can't deaden one emotion and have it not affect the others. It affects all of them. And so as we get free from some of the negative things, it gives us the opportunity to experience more joy and to really experience life to the full. But it can be so easy to slide into things. I was thinking about the movie, uh, The Jungle Book. We just went and saw the latest version of it not very long ago. And I was thinking about uh, little Mowgli going through the jungle and the big snake, the python, Caw, comes. And he's mesmerizing Mowgli. And Mowgli's so focused on looking into the eyes of Caw that he doesn't even realize that he's wrapping his body around um, little Mowgli, and he's about to choke him to death. We've got to be sensitive to what's going on around us and not blinded or distracted to where we miss some ways that we could easily go astray. The echoes of David's story are surprisingly common today, different levels of dishonesty and betrayal, and, and uh, that it, we see that we humans have this amazing capacity to justify ourselves. Uh, we can rationalize certain behavior little by little by little, and all of a sudden we, we get ensnared in something. About every day, it averages about every day, I have somebody that comes to me, and they've been caught in something. They've been caught in a trap, and they've been in something for some time, and they've been found out. It's come out some way, and they begin to tell their story. And I can base, I'm, I'm basically ready to hear pretty much the same couple of sentences from every single person that I hear. And I believe it's very genuine. I don't think it's just something that they're saying to try to help themselves feel a little bit better. I think it's very genuine and comes from the heart. They begin to look back at, at what they were ensnared in. 
and, and I hear from them over and over again is, I can't believe I did that. I can't, that's like another person. That's like another life. How could I have possibly? It wasn't one decision. It was little by little by little. So we're going to look just for a few minutes at what are those things that we can easily get entrapped in? We can easily start sliding into, and we aren't even aware of it. We call them sins of relationships. So things that can be very deadly to our relationships. The first one is selfishness. I want what I want. Probably the number one killer of relationships is selfishness. It's me. It's all about me. Me, 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 me. I want what I want. I have a really close friend, and we don't get to see each other very often because our lives have gotten really busy. So when we get together, we talk nonstop. Like we're talking over each other. It's like, oh, and I didn't tell you this happened to me. And oh, I have to tell you about this that happened to me. And I have to tell you about this. And we have We guys are doing that all the time. I know. You know, we just talk and talk and talk. I have trouble with Brent with that. He is just such a chatterbox. It's just been really difficult for me. But what we'll do, we'll be in the midst of talking to each other, and we've, we've come up with this line that we use that we got from Beth Moore. And so if I find I'm talking about myself way too much, then I'll stop and go, oh, enough about me. What about you? What do you think of me? So, it's... It's our line. Selfishness is easy to fall into because it's so natural for us. It's that thing that we slide into without even thinking. But it's actually a form of idolatry. It's saying, I don't trust God to meet my needs. I'm not depending on him. I need you as my spouse to do this for me to make me happy. Or I need to have this thing for me to be okay. It's I'm not trusting God for how he is providing for my life and how he's leading. And I'm taking that into my own hands. And that's in direct conflict with the way of God that says, give and it shall be given to you. Or in order to gain your life, you're going to have to lose it. The way of the kingdom is in opposition to that. And yet, the selfish way feels very, very natural. I came across an article this week. Um, some of you may have seen it if you read Time Magazine or uh, got it on your Kindle or something, How to Stay Married and Why. And I was interested, and I read it, and it basically talks about all the reasons why uh, staying married are healthy for people and all the positive reasons from long-term monogamy. And, and uh, I agreed with all of it. It was almost everything they said. It was like, yes, and it affirmed my experience in working with couples for so many years. And and, um, you know, it talked about that, you know, couples that stay married in long-term relationships have better health, they have better wealth, um, they have better sex life, they, they die happier, which is all what, what we all long for, right? Um, the, uh, uh, they're less likely to have strokes and heart attacks, and, and they deal with stress better, they heal better, all of these reasons. And I would say yes. And, and it was all positive information. But... It felt to me like what so often happens in our culture is we just, again, have our focus off kilter. Because it's still back to what about me? All advertising in our culture is, is how's this going to benefit me? And everything turns back to what is good for me. 
I believe that God designed marriage. He designed parenting. He designed friendships. He designed community in a, in a church body. To, not so that I get my needs met, but to be formative in me so that when I focus on the other, it, it's like I get to practice being formed into the image of God because love is something that we do for the other. And so these are relationships that give me an opportunity like moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day to practice and to be formed into other focus. It's people that I get to learn how to give to. And as I give, all of a sudden, I become more Christ-like. I become more other-focused. And yet, we've turned it all about me um, when it's supposed to be about the other. Now, the amazing thing about God, when we get things oriented properly, the mystery of God is when you orient your life towards the other, when your life is not about getting your own needs met, but it's about caring for the other, then what happens is it's the deepest blessing that you could possibly enter into in life. God enriches you and blesses your life and gives you the greatest kind of joy because I guarantee if you just try to get, 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 you'll never be satisfied. Um, it, it ultimately will never be fulfilling. It's only when we orient and we are, we are made, as we are made in the image of God, we become more human uh, because we're more other-focused. The second relational sin that we see is envy or covetousness. Um, it's, again, I want what I want. I tend to separate those two. Envy, to me, envy is, man, I really want that, or I wish I had that. Where covetousness, to me, is, it's terrible that I don't have that. This is unfair. I'm deprived because I don't have this, and I have to have it. We get obsessed with something. This is what we see with Ahab. It's terrible that I can't get this vegetable garden. So I'm going to cry and whine. Really, Ahab? Really? Like there's no other land in your kingdom, King Ahab, that you could have for a garden? Or even, really, you're the one that goes out and takes care of your vegetables? So it has to be close to you? No. He had people to do that. But it was the focus of, I want what I want, and I'm going to do what I can to get it. James 4 talks about this, and I love this section of Scripture in the Message Bible. Um, it, at the heading, before you start into James, 1, or James 4, 1, says, get serious. I love that. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours, and you will risk violence to get it into your and to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. Ouch. The part of us that feels gypped and that feels like this isn't, this isn't fair and I need to get this, that's at war with that part of us that's seeking a life after God and that's seeking godliness. 
Godliness says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. And my God shall supply all of my needs. It's a direct opposition to this life of gratitude. But we have that ugly self-snake that comes in that mesmerizes us and that can so easily draw us into envy or into covetousness. Envy and covetousness set set us up for what we call the 90-10 lie. And we have seen this so prevalent in marriages, but we see it really in all relationships in our life. We see it how people um, deal with their jobs, uh, how they deal with buying a new house or a new car. Um, We see it even you're going to experience this in your church experience. Uh, In marriage, the way it goes is we do a lot of premarital counseling, and couples, when they first fall in love, it's just, it's really a beautiful thing to see. You know, they're just like really smitten, and and, uh, they pretty much think that, gosh, I found everything that I've been looking for in life, and and oftentimes falsely think I have 100% of what I'd ever want in in a spouse. Well, there's no way a human being could ever be 100%. They're not God. Uh, most people marry somebody that's about 80 to 90% of what they would like to have in a mate. The challenge with that is that that leaves 10 to 20% of what I wish I had, I don't have. Now, we're marriage counselors, and so we help people go from 75 to 80 to 80 to 82 to 82 to 85 to 85 to 90, but generally it's never going to be over 90 or so. There's always going to be things that you wish you had that this person will never have. The challenge with that that creates the lie is you're going to encounter other people in your life that have that quality. And it will affect you. It affects all of us. On the lower end of the continuum, it just affects our attitude. We just start getting a little critical internally. Even if we don't say anything, gosh, I just wish they were more like this, or I wish they would do this different, or I wish they would do that different. And it's like a poison that gets released in the relationship. Move up the continuum a little, a little higher, and all of a sudden now I begin to critique them. And I begin to criticize them and tell them what they, they're not doing right. And we begin controlling, and, and uh, it, obviously that releases that poison even more. And then move up the ladder a little farther, which is what we spend so much of our life doing, um, it, which is kind of the ultimate betrayal in a relationship, is I come to believe that I cannot live without that. I have to have the 10%. The problem with that thinking, with that lie, is that even if it's only 10%, if you don't have it, it doesn't feel like 10%. It feels like 20% or 50% or 80%. And we buy into that lie, and I have to go get this. And what we see day after day after day is people going after that. But what we see is they get out there and they get it. And yes, I got the 10%, but all of a sudden now their thinking begins to clear. And they begin to look back and go, yes, I got the 10%, but this person will never have the 80 or 90% of what I left. And it's a lie, and it's going to affect us. Some of you are going to be impacted by that with the church. The very first time you came here, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. Where's this place been? And now that you've been here a while, it's like, Okay, they kind of do some weird stuff. What is it with that? And why don't they do this different? I'm sure this has never happened to any of you, okay? It's going to affect us. It'll affect you, you know, that that car that you just thought, if you bought that car, it was going to make life fabulous, and you were just couldn't wait to drive down the street and 
go by a mirrored building and you're going to see yourself. This is going to be beautiful. You know, and you get it, and for like a week, it's like intoxicating, and then a couple of months go by, and it's got a couple of dings in the door, and you're still making the payments, and, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I see that car. My car doesn't quite have what that. It just affects us. And so we, the, the key to full life is to realize this is going to happen to us. This is part of our human challenge. This is what we get, this is what we get impacted by. And it goes back to having a heart of gratitude, being, going back to being thankful for what it is that we have. Or we will get lured away by the 10% or the 20%. We have to be able to be thankful and focus on that. Um, and if we live a life of, life of gratitude um, and a life of being satisfied with what it is that we have, it moves us into fullness of life. The third relational sin is contempt. I want what I want, and I want the world to be the way I think it should be. So contempt says, you're bad because you don't do things right, or you don't think right, or you don't know how to meet my needs. And so we end up criticizing or being dismissive of another person's opinion or their viewpoints because they're different than we are. It's easy to have contempt. We can have contempt for people who don't make the same life choices that we do. We can have contempt for people who don't agree with us. We can have contempt for people in our families that just don't do things right. You know, I'm not talking like abuse or crossing boundaries. I'm talking those things like, you don't get the things for my birthday that I think you should get me. You don't know how to get presents. You're not very good at this. Okay, okay, or, I'll work on it. <laughs> not you, you're very good at it. If not, you've got two days to really get your act together. It's her birthday in a couple of days, so pray for me, yeah, pray for please. me that I will do well this. Call the girls. Um, <laughs> or it's things like they talk too much at family gatherings. They're things that really do not matter at all in the long run. And yet we tend to have contempt towards them because they're not doing it the way that we think that we should. And one of the biggest ones that we see in our practice is contempt for a spouse because you're not getting what I really need, which is translated into what I expect or what I want. We can even have contempt. Do we have contempt towards those acquaintances or coworkers that we have that that we can pretty much tell by the conversation that they're not going to vote right here in a few months. Um, and so we start having contempt towards them, uh, and we start dismissing them and start discounting uh, the way that they think because if they think that, they've got to be wrong. I'm amazed that when we come to these kinds of times, I'm amazed at how quick we are to judge, how quick we are to dismiss others, and how quick people are to do that before they even talk to the other person. They just, we just label people and we dismiss them uh, immediately. Um, several years ago, uh, a few elections ago, we had a member of our, of our worship team at the time um, drive into the parking lot with a certain bumper sticker on their car. And after service, I had a couple of long-term um, parishioners come to me, and I thought they were having a heart attack. They, they literally were shaking their faces were flush, and if you could foam at the mouth, they were foaming at the mouth. 
And they were like, did you see that one of our worship team leaders had this bumper sticker? Um, and I was like, what are you talking about? Um, and uh, he must think this and this and this. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, sit down, take a few deep breaths so we don't uh, have a heart attack here. Uh, and I said, first of all, have you ever talked to them about why it is that they might think about voting that way? And what are the reasons? And of course they had not. They had absolutely dismissed them. And I actually knew why that person was considering that. Um, and it actually had a lot to do with their core Christian beliefs. But how that was going to happen in the political system was very different than the other person. So we, dis- we dismissed them. It's so very easy for us to do this. And even if you think somebody's going to all of a sudden vote another way and they're running the country and they become your enemy, what have we been instructed to do with our enemies? Matthew 5 says, But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then it goes on and describes how God views all of his children He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So today, life is not gained through selfishness, covetousness, um, contempt. Even though we are prone to those things, we will never gain life that way. Those things dehumanize us. They make us less human. Uh, In our... um, We've had a really cool experience the last few months um, as Pastor Ed has stepped into a bishop's role and, and we've started connecting with some other pastors, like-minded pastors around the country. They're kind of fascinated with kind of this convergence of the different streams of, in the unity of the church. And so we've had an opportunity to, to connect with some of the pastors. We're kind of walking through the daily office together. We're reading it in the morning and in the evening and, and we're starting to kind of text each other and share what God's... Um, um, you know, saying to us, and it's just been a really, a really cool thing to see what the Spirit's kind of saying among everybody. And, and uh, uh, Bishop Quentin uh, text something that I think kind of caps this off today. Uh, because we oftentimes fear letting go, giving up control, trying to get our needs met ourselves. We don't, we, reality is we don't trust God much. Um, but the quote was this, it said, people who empty themselves in the wilderness Always meet a God who is greater than they would have dared to hope. So we find the fullness of life when we let go. Even though we've talked today about sin and the depth of sin that we're all capable of, we do believe in good news. Jesus came to bring us new life. And life in him is radically countercultural. It's radically different than what our natural tendency would be to slide into selfishness and to go after, I want what I want. But it's the way of peace. It's the way of having a life that really is worth living. It's the way that we find joy. New life and freedom begins with repentance. And repentance brings refreshing. Acts 3.19 says, Repent then and turn to the Lord so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You know, deep in our core, we know that we wouldn't really be happy if we got everything our way. We know that if we made the people around us act right, 
that that's really not the way to happiness. We know that if we turn our lives over to him and those moments where we go, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I'm messing things up. I'm trying to go in this direction and it doesn't seem to go right. Lord, I'm turning my life and everything over to you and I'm just submitting to whatever you want for me. We know that that comes with peace. We know there's a contentment that comes there. And so it's saying I, this burden or this yoke I have of I've got to get my needs met, I'm just going to turn that over to you, Lord, and I'm going to trust that you will supply all of my needs and that I can trust you to walk through this life and to be safe in you because you love me so much. Let's just pray together if you'd just bow your heads for a moment. Lord, we simply come to you this morning and we're thankful, first of all, that you get us. You understand our tendency towards these things. You understand why we fear not getting what we want. And thank you that you, you don't condemn us because of that. But if we are going a certain direction, you will convict our hearts. Because you know if we're going a different path, then it does make us less human. It makes us less in your image. And so we come to you saying simply this morning that we do believe that you have a path that is right for us, that is the best for us, that is the best for not only us individually in community, um, in unity throughout the world, that you have a best path. But help us when we don't believe that because our behavior suggests that we don't believe because we're going all kind of different directions and chasing rabbits. And so we just simply say, help us in our unbelief. Lord, we trust you, but help us in those moments where we don't trust you. And so we simply come to you, open our hearts. If there's something that we don't even realize we're doing, then by your spirit, come to us and say, this is you. And thank you that you don't do that with harshness, with condemnation, but it's full of love because you want our best. And so we are committed that when our hearts are convicted to do our part, which is to own that and to repent and turn a corner and, and walk down a different path. And so we honor you as we give our lives to you now. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you would stand. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.